Okay, so this week I wanted to try something a little bit different. Okay, I I'll, I'll bite. What what uh, what do you want to try out? I want to go through not one story but three different stories. All right, Michael. I mean, one story takes a lot of work. I'm just saying, so it's kind of ambitious, but. I will, uh, I'll try to go with you here. Let's see how it goes, right? Okay, so I'll give you a hint about the first one. The clock is ticking for Tesla CEO Elon Musk. He now has three weeks to close on his blockbuster purchase of Twitter if he wants to avoid a trial. The Delaware judge granted Musk this small extension just days before the two parties were set to close on the original deal. All right, that was easy. That's the whole Elon Musk Twitter deal. That's right. We're going to cover how we got here, what this X app platform could be that Musk has been talking about on Twitter. Okay, so story number two. I want to share what we imagine is possible. The experiences you'll have, the creative economy we'll all build, and the technology that needs to be invented, as well as how we're going to all do this together. The basic story of technology in our lifetimes is how it's given us the power to express ourselves and experience the world with ever greater richness. Okay, you could stop it right there. That was RoboZuck talking about the metaverse. That's right. And finally, our last story. Of the 90% of people who have heard of cryptocurrency, there is a small minority who have a glimpse of the larger picture. There's this new technology. It's crazy. One way to conceive of Bitcoin is it's the technology that allows us to move money over the internet. It's a beautiful thing. You just have to trust the code. 2010, I happened to come across the Bitcoin white paper. In the evenings and weekends, I started tinkering. The big idea was make Bitcoin easier to use. I thought, maybe I'm crazy. This could have an enormous impact on the world. Okay. Um, I mean, it's it's, it's crypto-related. I, th- I think that's Brian Armstrong there, right? It is. It is. And that's the new Coinbase documentary on Amazon Prime that just dropped. Looking back at what some might call the glory days of crypto. Okay. Well... Three stories, I guess we've got a pretty packed show. Let's roll that intro and give our sponsors a thank you. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka. And I'm Mike Belsito. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. As artificial intelligence continues to revolutionize our world, 
there's a critical conversation that we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play. Rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. With over 750 specialized hackers in their community, HackerOne isn't just theorizing. They're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large organization, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI-Safety-Security. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI-Safety-Security. This episode is supported by Trustonomy, an original podcast from OneTrust. Every good relationship you have, personal or business, it involves trust. But we all know that trust doesn't just happen, right? We've all lost trust in a friend or a brand or a product. Trustonomy is a new podcast that looks at true stories from the past to understand how trust works and what makes it stronger and how to rebuild it when it's broken. Now, you know, I'm a sucker for a good podcast that weaves historical stories and relates it to what's happening today. So I thoroughly enjoyed this Trustonomy episode and recommend that you check that out as well. Search for Trustonomy in your podcast player. We'll also include a link in the show notes. Many thanks to the OneTrust team for their support. All right, so first up, we have the much-discussed but probably slightly misunderstood Elon Musk and Twitter deal. The most talked-about deal of the year could be back on. Elon Musk has sent a proposal to Twitter saying he is willing to buy the social media platform at the original $44 billion price point. In return, Musk is asking Twitter to drop its lawsuit against him, which is due to head to trial in just a few weeks. Okay, right. So Elon Musk made an offer to buy Twitter, then tried to get out of the offer, saying that Twitter wouldn't turn over the data on bots and fake accounts, and then... Twitter turns around and sues Elon Musk for breaching the purchase agreement. Right. So first, what do you make of Musk buying Twitter? Is this good for the platform or? I don't know. If I'm being <laughs> honest, Michael, I feel like this is like one of those impulse decisions some billionaire made and then, you know, later regretted and is trying to save face. And so he goes to the bots and. I, it seems a little all ridiculous to me, if I'm being honest, but I, I don't know. I hear you. There's definitely some buyer's remorse happening in this one. But, <laughs> you know, for the platform itself, we, we already have Facebook spreading misinformation on the daily. And it feels like Musk, at the helm of Twitter, probably headed in the same direction. The platform already has a huge spam, bot manipulation, misinformation problem. And Musk doesn't really seem concerned with changing any of that and kind of... Seems like he'll head in the same direction as Facebook or Meta, as we say, which barely has much of a moral compass left. Yes, but you know, maybe they'll they'll finally finalize that edit button. I, I've seen people <laughs> trialing. Yes, the elusive edit button. So I wanted to see how did we get here? This deal, it felt like a bad joke, as you said at first. And it also it's kind of been in the brink of collapse since the very beginning. All right. Well, we'd have to rewind all the way back to January of 2022. You say it like we're going back in time. It's only like 10 months ago. <laughs> yeah, that's true. 10 months in 2022, though. I don't know. It feels like <laughs> years, if we're being honest. <laughs> 
It's true. It's true. Okay. So let's rewind all the way back to January of 2022. Yes. Late January, Elon Musk begins investing in Twitter, according to information filed with the SEC in April. And then on March 14th, Musk's stake in Twitter reached 9.2%, making him actually the largest shareholder in the company, according to a securities filing. On April 4th, in a securities filing, Musk disclosed his stake in Twitter. Based on the price of Twitter shares at the close of the previous day, his stake was worth $2.89 billion. Twitter shares rose 29% on that announcement. At this point, everybody kind of knew something big was happening behind the scenes. But then on April 5th, Twitter announced that Musk would join the company's board of directors. Twitter went wild. We've got some breaking news to bring you right now, uh, which is that Elon Musk uh, is now uh, being appointed to Twitter's board of directors. He's going to serve as what's called a class two director. So we've been talking a lot about what's happened in the past 24 hours. Took, takes that 9.2% stake. We think it's a passive stake. I think we all thought there was something else going on. This is what's going on. It's going to be appointed as a director. And then the question, of course, is how much influence is he really going to have? I don't know if we did think it was, We never really did think it was a passive sale, although it's all semantics because he's not your normal activist. He's a he's a activist. He's that wants much to, more powerful. Right. Yeah, yeah, he, I don't think he, he, he's he trying to shake things up. So the, the stock moved about 25 percent yesterday. It's, just, it's moving about 5 percent on this news now. He will participate in director benefit arrangements applicable to non-employee directors. That means I think, I think he's paid. He'll, he'll, I, paid. I know that's, that's what, what I, I wanted. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, he, that means he would get paid. Yeah. You know, I don't know. That's what, what I mean. Two or three grand. Twitter CEO Parag Agrawal says he's both a passionate believer and intense critic of the service, which is exactly what we need on Twitter and in the boardroom to make us stronger in the long term. Welcome, Elon. But then. On April 11th, there are more questions tonight about the future of Twitter. The world's richest man and largest individual shareholder of the company backed out of plans to join its board of directors. But that means he is now free to expand his stake even further. Twitter CEO released a note to staff saying this in part, there will be distractions ahead, but our goals and priorities remain unchanged. The decisions we make and how we execute is in our hands and no one else's. Musk turns away from the board position so that he can continue to increase his ownership stake in Twitter. Now, on April 14th, just three days later, Musk offers to buy Twitter at $54.20 per share, valuing the company at around $43 billion, according to an SEC filing. The offer amounts to a 38% premium above where the price stood day before Musk's investment in Twitter became public. Musk wrote, I invested in Twitter as I believe in the potential to be the platform for free speech around the globe. And I believe free speech is a societal imperative for functioning democracy. Twitter needs to be transformed as a private company. Which, of course, set off all the speculations about why he wanted to take the company private. Yeah, and who could blame them, right? I mean, free speech has been a dog whistle within far-right politics for a while now. Yeah, I mean, Musk knows what he's doing. I, he, he likes this kind of game. But now on April 15th, Twitter adopted a poison pill provision to prevent the acquisition or at least prevent it from falling apart. A poison pill allows current stockholders to purchase additional shares at a discounted price, diluting the shares owned by Musk and making it more expensive for him to buy the company. 
In an announcement, Twitter said the poison pill would be triggered if any individual or entity acquires at least 15% of the company's shares. Yeah, now the goal here is to prevent outsiders from gaining control without negotiating with the company's board or paying a negotiated buyout price to all shareholders. Courts have upheld poison pills as a legitimate defense by corporate boards, which are not obligated to accept any offer that they don't deem to be in the company's long-term interest. So this is holding him at arm's length. They're like, we, we trust you, but we, we don't really trust you. So then on April 21st, Musk says in the security filings that he has garnered commitments of about $46.5 billion in financing for the possible Twitter acquisition. April 25th, Twitter accepts Musk's offer to acquire the company and values the deal at $44 billion, according to an announcement from the company. Now they're locked in, right? And things start to get really interesting. <laughs> yes, yes. So four days later, after Musk and Twitter reach a deal, he sells about $8.5 billion worth of Tesla stock to help finance the bid. Yes, and on May 4th, Musk secured more than $7 billion in financing for the deal, including commitments from Oracle co-founder Larry Ellison, venture capital firm Sequoia Capital, and cryptocurrency exchange Binance, at least according to a securities filing. Two days later, May 6th, in a pitch deck for investors, Musk says he will quintuple Twitter's revenue by 2028, increasing annual earnings to $26.4 billion. Days later, Musk says he would reverse Twitter's ban of the account that belongs to former President Donald Trump. The remarks from Musk were made virtually at actually an auto conference. It was not correct to ban Donald Trump. I think that was, that was a mistake um, because it... Uh, it alienated a large part of the country and did not ultimately result in Donald Trump not having a voice. He is now going to be on Truth Social, um, as will uh, a large part of the sort of the, the right in the in the United States. Um, and so I think this could end up being, frankly, worse than having a, sing, you know, a single forum where everyone can debate. Um, so... Um, I guess the answer is that I, 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 I would reverse the perma ban. I would say I'm not, I don't own Twitter yet, so this is not like a thing that will definitely happen because what if I don't own Twitter? Then on May 12th, things really heat up and Twitter announces a temporary hiring freeze pending Musk's acquisition and two top executives leave the company. Then Musk begins talking about the Twitter filing where they claim that bots only represent 5% of active users on the platform, which he clearly doesn't believe. I don't think anyone believes that who's used Twitter, but it's already really strange. The shaky deal, it's starting to go south at this point. Then on May 26, Twitter shareholders bring a class action lawsuit against Musk over alleged stock manipulation tied to the tumultuous acquisition process. At the time, Twitter stock has fallen more than 12% since Musk announced his bid. All this talk, it's not helping out the Twitter stock price at all, and shareholders were not happy. Then on June 6th, Musk threatened to pull out of the deal if Twitter didn't provide additional information about the prevalence of bots on the platform. In his statement, Twitter said that it had been sharing information with Musk, quote, in accordance with the terms of the merger agreement. So... That brings us to July. We're just kind of stumbling forward here. Musk, again, moved to terminate his acquisition of Twitter, pointing to the issue of these fake accounts. Then, on July 12th, Twitter sued Musk in Chancery Court in Delaware to force him to complete the deal. If permitted to abandon the deal, Musk was forced to pay a billion-dollar termination fee. Then, 
On July 19th, a Delaware court determined that the trial in a lawsuit brought by Twitter against Musk should take place in October, granting the expedited timeline for the case. Yes, but we're not in October quite yet. I mean, we, we are in real life, but not in this <laughs> timeline yet. Let's go back to August 23rd. And it's all about alleged security vulnerabilities and recklessness. The disclosure obtained by CNN and also the Washington Post comes from Twitter's former head of security. Peter Zatko's claims were sent last month to Congress and several federal agencies. In this 200-page disclosure, Zatko portrays a chaotic environment at a mismanaged company that allows too many staffers access to central controls and sensitive information without adequate oversight. Zatko also alleges that some of the company's senior-most executives have tried to cover up Twitter's vulnerabilities. What a blow. Twitter responds by saying that Zatko was spreading a false narrative about Twitter and was fired for ineffective leadership and poor performance. Zatko, who's also known by the name Mudge, is a longtime hacker advocate who's the most prominent member of the high-profile hacker think tank The Loft, as well as the computer and culture hacking cooperative The Cult of the Dead Cow. Uh, he also served at Google and DARPA. Surprisingly enough, this story pretty much faded away without really affecting the deal much. Yeah, it's it's still kind of ongoing, but yeah, it, it didn't kill the deal as many had expected it to. So then on October 4th, Elon Musk took everyone by surprise when he offered to buy Twitter again at his original offer. What is interesting is the timing of Musk's offer as it appears he's kind of run out of moves here. Musk tried to get out of the deal initially by claiming that Twitter lied in its estimate that less than 5% of its daily active users were spam or fake, but his claims, they have no solid proof. And with the scheduled trial less than two weeks away, Musk and his lawyers finally realized his case couldn't be won in court. So here we are. Yeah, Elon Musk does not want to go to trial. He doesn't want to be deposed. That's <laughs> a huge risk for him, right? <laughs> yeah. So. How the hell is he going to pay for this? Okay, well, as far as I understand it, Musk has pledged to provide $46.5 billion in equity and debt financing for the acquisition, which covers the $44 billion price tag and closing costs. Uh, banks, including Morgan Stanley and Bank of America, they committed to provide $13 billion of debt financing to support the deal. Musk's $33.5 billion equity commitment, that would include his 9.6% Twitter stake, which is worth $4 billion, and the $7.1 billion he secured from equity investors like Oracle co-founder Larry Ellison and the Saudi prince Alawid bin Talal. That's the same Alawid bin Talal that invested 500 million in Russian firms as the Ukraine war launched, right? Right. But he was uh, one of the few investors who initially spoke out against Musk's takeover and said it did not reflect Twitter's intrinsic value given its growth prospects. But in late May, Alawid tracked back on his comment and agreed to contribute 35 million Twitter shares worth 1.9 billion dollars to retain a stake in the company post acquisition. Okay, so all of this still leaves Musk needing to secure about 22.4 billion of funds to cover the equity financing portion of the deal, or else this thing is dead again and he owes Twitter $1 billion for breaking the deal. And that same day he tweeted, buying Twitter is an accelerant to creating X, the everything app. All right, so let's return to that. Plus, we'll get into the Zuckerverse after a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. 
So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. So before the break, we caught up on Elon Musk, the Twitter drama. It's looking like Musk will either need to sell off more of his Tesla or SpaceX stock to fund the deal, or he's going to break his deal and pay a billion dollars to Twitter. It's crazy that it could actually come to that, and and he would be just fine. But if the deal does go through, what is this X platform he's talking about, right? Yeah, product people everywhere, I'm sure, are curious. So... Here's what we're able to decipher so far. X, it appears, is Musk's idea for a worldwide social media platform modeled after WeChat. In China, WeChat is used by more than a billion people as an all-in-one social media, instant messaging, and mobile payments app. Used to order food, hail cabs, find news. It's sewn into the fabric of daily life. Mr. Musk has said that if enough people worldwide use a similar app to communicate, it could establish a payment system as well. He talked about this all-in-one platform in August when a Twitter user asked Mr. Musk whether he had considered creating his own social platform. He replied, x.com. Earlier that month, at Tesla's annual shareholder meeting, Musk said he had a pretty grand vision for X as something that would be very useful to the world. X.com is, of course, Musk's first big venture. In 1989, he helped found X.com, which was an online bank. In 2000, X.com merged with Confinity, a competing software company. And in 2001, Peter Thiel, one of Confinity's founders, replaced Mr. Musk as X.com's chief executive. And the company was renamed PayPal. In 2017, Musk bought the domain of X.com from PayPal. So, Mike, what do you make of this kind of X platform WeChat thing that he wants to put together. Yeah, I mean, the all-in-one social media network that, you know, does everything, access payments, helps you hail cabs. Like you said before, I mean, this does exist. I mean, in in China, everybody uses WeChat. It's it's so ubiquitous. But it's hard to say. I mean, again, if if this is something that Elon Musk is bringing to life, what makes it so, you know, different than Twitter today. I mean, aside from all those features, if we're talking about something that, you know, he's so worried about bots and he's worried about misinformation on one side of things, I don't know. I don't know if it necessarily solves those issues, but obviously Musk has grand visions and those grand visions sometimes turn into really, really big things. So who knows? What do you think? Yeah. No, I I agree. This one actually... Like from the guy that does, you know, the boring company and the the hyperloop, he's usually aiming pretty big. This actually kind of feels small in that it does already exist. And, you know, maybe we don't have it in the, I guess, the Western uh, hemisphere here, but it doesn't feel that revolutionary to me. I don't know. Like it, it could work. It could not. And I, I don't know if I really care if it exists or not, but... I don't know, I guess for Twitter itself, the product has been really stagnant. So they've been making small bets here and there, you know, with the the audio uh, chat. But I don't know, it's not like they're taking big swings like this would be like a company like Meta has been doing. Yeah, and maybe this is a good transition point here, because speaking of Meta, Meta is actively developing the metaverse and what they call today Horizon World. And when you enter Horizon, it sounds something 
like this. Hello, and welcome to Facebook Horizon. Oh, hello. It's a place where you can meet up with your friends and make new ones while exploring virtual worlds. Dumbledore, is that Dumbledore? Some worlds are for socializing, others are for gaming, but they were all created by people like you. Like me. Now let's check out some of Horizon's tools and features. Okay. To continue, look at your left wrist and press the safe zone button. Your safe zone is a private space. Safe away zone. Away from the people and things around you. This is my safe space. Now, do you know where the term metaverse actually comes from? I thought it was a, a Zuckerberg thing, no? <laughs> Well, it comes from Neil Stephenson's 1992 science fiction novel, Snow Crash, in which the term metaverse was introduced to describe a digital space where people could escape their dismal realities. The book's protagonist, Hiro, is a laid-off pizza deliveryman who, with his roommate, lives in a storage unit. But he's a warrior in the computer-generated world where he visits wearing his goggles. It's kind of depressing when you think about it. Yeah, and probably accurate, but... Okay, back to Horizon World. Right. So there are about 300,000 people who are signed up to this Horizon World. The whole world, it's very childish in a way. I mean, it reminds me of one of those late 90s chat rooms where you create a character and walk around to different rooms. <laughs> Everybody kind of looks like some sort of manga character of some sort. <laughs> yep. I, I do remember going on sites like The Palace. I mean, honestly, none of it is really new. It's kind of just like the old chat rooms with fancy goggles. Yeah, exactly. So in Horizon World, for instance, there are no legs. Everybody's <laughs> just kind of floating around. Yep. And from what I understand, the limitation is the device itself. It can't really support more complex graphics, at least at the scale of a metaverse. So what I've heard is you'd have to literally wear like an Xbox-sized device on your head for the graphics to improve. So they have a long way to go to really make this thing appealing. Yeah, but you know, it, it's not 1998 and this doesn't feel much different from an old version of, say, Second Life in virtual reality, right? Yeah, so... I take you're not escaping into the metaverse nightly, Mike, after putting the kids to bed. <laughs> I mean, uh, hey, I do have uh, an, an Oculus Quest. Okay. Sometimes I, I strap it on. I'm not really going to the metaverse, so to speak, though. Like, I, I've seen some VR movies. I play some VR games every once in a while, but I don't know. I'm not, I'm not really stuck in the metaverse. We'll put it that way. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. It feels just very, like a singular activity to me, you know, where you just, you strap in and you're lost. Uh, and that's why I, I just don't know if I could make it part of my, my daily routine, but I mean, who knows? We'll see where we are in a decade. So Zuckerberg feels very much the opposite though. He wants this to be part of everyone's life. And in an interview with Joe Rogan, he said, one of the thought experiments that I like to do is thinking about how few of the things that we physically have in the world actually need to be physical. Yeah, he seems pretty obsessed with making this a, a thing, right? Yeah, to say the least. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't look forward to living in like a Zuckerberg digital hellscape where we all live in like a little white box and barely move all day. But we work and play in the metaverse. So um, I don't know. Things aren't all rosy either inside the development of the Zuckerverse. So we'll get to that and the Coinbase documentary after a quick word from our sponsors. So before the break, we were discussing the Meta Metaverse and their virtual world, Horizon World. Now, despite putting billions of dollars behind the Metaverse development, Horizon World remains pretty buggy, and I, I wouldn't call it very popular. 
And this has caused Meta to put themselves in a quality lockdown for the rest of the year while it retools the app. In a circumstance we're probably all familiar with when working in product, Meta employees have gone on the record complaining about frequent strategy shifts uh, that seem tied more to Zuckerberg's whims rather than some cohesive vision or plan. Yeah, in September, Vishal Shah, the vice president in charge of Meta's metaverse direction, wrote on an internal message board that he was disappointed in how few Meta employees were using Horizon Worlds. Now that was according to a post obtained by the New York Times. Mr. Shah said that managers would begin tracking workers' use of Horizon Worlds, saying that they're testing their own technology and that would be essential. He was quoted as saying, why don't we love the product we built so much that we use it all the time? The simple truth is, if we don't love it, how can we expect our users to love it? I mean, he's right, but the fact that you even have to say that speaks volumes. So, I don't know. It sounds like we're kind of lukewarm on the metaverse right now, but how's uh, crypto doing? Crypto. Is that still a thing these days? <laughs> I mean, I guess. I just don't like to look at the charts. But this week, Coinbase, the popular crypto exchange, released a documentary they actually made about themselves on Amazon Prime. <laughs> So I guess one big piece of, of content marketing, right? A self-promotional <laughs> documentary? Yep. It's called Coin. And I don't know, it's worth a watch, but I don't know, with some really big grains of salt, there's a lot of like Bitcoin maximalist ideas, rose-colored glasses. And what we get to see is Armstrong's journey to a billionaire status as he's kind of ushered along by a cast of Silicon Valley superstars in Paul Graham, Ron Conway, Fred Wilson, and even the rapper Nas. He uh, he makes an appearance. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm going to definitely sit down and, and watch it, but uh, I'm glad you pointed out those caveats because I'll definitely be thinking about those too. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth it, but overall, there, I guess, unsurprisingly, there isn't a whole lot of conflict. Armstrong just Seems to kind of coast through the movie, riding the crypto wave until they go public. There's a couple, you know, telling parts. The only real turbulence that Armstrong hits is about halfway through the film, when they're covering the period when the CEO infamously declined to say Black Lives Matter in a company-wide town hall after the murder of George Floyd, and this is May of 2022. Instead, the film recaps Armstrong doubling down, offering severance to anyone who wants to leave. The filmmaker, Greg Coase, captured a Zoom conference with Coinbase director of product management, in which Armstrong says he is kind of like a believer in Black Lives Matter, but he doesn't want the company to be a mouthpiece for political views. Armstrong later then tells Coase he should have done something sooner, but the incident helped everyone become more aligned and move towards the mission again. I don't know. Pretty sure he got this one wrong. But if you think it's worth it, Give it a watch and uh, let us know what you think. Yeah, well, that's going to wrap things up for this episode. You're right, Michael. This is a little different than we've normally done lately. Um, maybe we'll try some more like these in the future. But this is going to wrap things up for today. So until next time, for Michael Saka, I'm Mike Belsito, and this is Rocketship.fm. Thank you so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. It is your support that keeps the show going. If you can, take a second and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps out the show so much. We're also part of the Podglomerate Network, and if you'd like to listen to more great shows from the Podglomerate, go to thepodglomerate.com to see the full show listings. This episode was mixed and mastered by Court Deans. 
Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product people. Go to productcollective.com and get access to our weekly newsletter, live video interviews, Slack community, product job board, and a whole lot more. Again, just go to productcollective.com.